0: She says, Lord, should you not care? Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to come help me. You see, it's something very much like prayer, isn't it? Coming to the Lord and making a request before him, asking him to help. She prays, but she finds that the prayer falls short. Her prayer is rejected, but her person is not. Her drawing near is received, even though her words themselves are rebuked by the Lord. She's left there, having prayed, left there at his feet, having given all her words and all her supplications to him. She's left there without words. She's silent and wordless, having finished what she thought she was there for and in need of something to say. And I think that that is... Very much like us so often, I wonder if you've ever found yourself having prayed, brought your supplications, and then being finished and feeling like, well, that was only a minute and I feel like I should spend more time in God's presence than simply a minute. Or maybe you've said everything and you just feel like he hasn't heard and hasn't answered and there's got to be more and I don't know what else to pray. Have you ever sat down or knelt down without even having anything at all to say? Maybe you know what it is like to feel foolish to ask again for that same thing that I've asked every time. And it just feels like every time I pray I fall into a rut and I just repeat myself and it feels empty. Well, let me suggest that the text comes to us who find ourselves in that exact frame of mind, in that exact place, with Martha at Jesus' feet, mute and dumb and not knowing what to say. And fittingly, it opens with a picture of the one who is never like that in prayer. It opens with a picture of the one who is in himself eloquence in prayer. Jesus, verse 1, now Jesus was praying. He was praying in a certain place. And that at least should give us some hint, some note of encouragement that when we fail to pray, Jesus does not fail to pray. Jesus is always praying. He's always interceding at God's right hand on our behalf. He always has something to pray. He is praying in a certain place, and the disciples seem to be aware of it. They seem to actually be watching him pray where he's praying in a certain place, as it continues. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, and let me just say too, that also ought to give us a bit of encouragement that Jesus, when he prays on earth, he finishes and he gets up and does something else. He's not in prayer all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He prays when it's time to pray and he gets up and he does what he needs to do when it's time to get up and do it. It's important for us to see that. So when he finished, because Jesus does finish, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught us or taught his disciples to pray. And I think it's at least passingly interesting to note that he asked the Lord to teach them teach him, teach the disciples as John did. Perhaps this is because when they watched Jesus pray, there was something so otherworldly about him. They didn't want to ask him to teach them to pray as he prayed, but at least give us some direction. Teach us like John, like one of us taught his disciples to pray. Behind the request, there's a feeling, it seems, of inadequacy before this one praying. Just Just teach us like John. We don't ask you to do it like you, but like John. Nevertheless, Jesus grants the request. He doesn't show any sign of hesitation at the request. Verse 2, he said to them, When you pray, say. He assumes when you pray that we will pray, doesn't he? When you pray, because you're going to. He expects us to. And not only that, I think he knows that we will. How does he know that we will? Well, like Martha came to him. How did Martha come to him? She is pressed by her anxieties and her need of help and her struggle and her confusion. She, she comes to him because she has nowhere else to go. God knows how to bring you to prayer. God knows how to bring you to your knees. And so when he says, when you pray, he knows that you will pray because he knows he, ha- he knows how to bring you to the place of prayer. And if you've not experienced that yet in your Christian walk, Let me promise you, you will. You will be forced to your knees. You will learn what it is to come needy and ask. If you are his, you will pray. You will lift up your voice to heaven. You will cry out in time of need. You will come and you will need him to give you what he willingly gives to the disciples here. Direction and grounding for the work. He teaches as one greater than John giving to you and I a tool which is intended to lead us not only into a prayer life, but a prayer life that is communion with God. We use it to join with Him in His prayer. It's literally His words. And so praying it, we take His words on our mouths and speak them as our own, Father. We say that about His Father and ours, and not only saying the same words, but so that wherever we may be, when we lift up our voice in prayer and take his words upon our lips, we make of that place, wherever it is, that same certain place where he is praying. It becomes the place of communion and place of prayer where Jesus prays. It is, remember, a means to that very end, a means of grace, a means of communion with God in Christ. And with that said, let us use the remainder of our time to look at the prayer itself as the Lord teaches us it. I've already said it. He begins with the simplest of words, does he not? We're, We're used to the longer form in Matthew, but in Luke, he's very short, compact, but it packs the same punch, it carries the same information. He says, Father, Father. I think it's probably one of the first words we speak as children. I actually, from the very beginning of my children's lives, try to teach them to say father before they say mama I have them stroke my beard with their little hands and I repeat after over and over again daddy daddy with this little baby in my arms hoping that they'll say daddy before they say mama and eventually they learn to do it don't they eventually they do lift up their voice and they say that simple syllabic word Dada, daddy and when they do that they join the chorus of all of my children who say, Daddy. They become part of the family that all cry out and speak of me as Father. Jesus gives us a word of participation in that sense. We speak Father, and we speak Father joining Him with all of the family in heaven who call on God as Father. We participate in life as a Son lifting our voice to Him in such a way. And so doing, it grounds us, does it not, in a very specific kind of reality in this life. It gives a whole new tone to the reality the, of the world in which we live. This is our Father's world, we sing. It tells us that the, the, the place that we live is not so alien as we may at may first seem. but it is, if it is our Father's house, then this is a home. This is a comfortable place safe place for us we are grounded in that place and not only a home but a family home and family it is something near and dear to many of us here home and family and then he adds to that that very near comfortable common understood reality of family and home he adds to it hallowed be thy name the close warm familial term is quickly set apart then as hallowed. Yes, we pray to God as our Father, because He is the one from whom all fathers on heaven and earth receive their name. And all that is good and true and comforting in our conception of fatherhood. And all that is good and true in in our conception of fatherhood is rooted in Him as our Father. Whether from our own fathers, we all have one, or whether from a father that we see in someone else's house that teaches us. I I have counseled a number of people as a a minister in in a church, and and I have spoken to a woman who had the most horrible of all fathers, but she had a story that she was brought into her uncle's house on a snowy day and sat in a comfortable chair and given hot cocoa before a fire, and so learned what it meant to be in a home with a mother and a father that cared for her and loved her. And so even though she didn't find the idea of father in her own home, she found it in another place. And here when we call on God as father, we are actually touching the reality of that thing, the, the very source of the being of all fatherhood on heaven and on earth. Here is the root of fatherliness in the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very reality is a thing because it finds its being In him, in that sense, hallowed, set apart, transcendent, other, and yet the very source of all other fathers. So when you pray to him, pray to Father, to him as our Father, to him as that Father, the Father and source of all things. Pray in the place of the Son to the Father, and seek from him a sense of the holiness of that name. We're not just saying the name is holy. We're asking for it to be hallowed in our hearts. As you know, the holiness of the name grow in the knowledge of the holiness, not only of the name, but of the house and the family to which you have been brought into by him and his grace. And to this he adds, your kingdom come. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Three very simple words, right? Shortened, simplified, yet each word has weight. Your. Do you know that you need that pronoun? Your? We, we need that pronoun because we so often when we come to prayer like Martha are thinking about our own things. And we need our attentions to be turned away from ourselves to someone else. Your. Not mine. Your. We need for our good to think about someone other than ourselves. And so it's good for us to say, your kingdom come. We need to think and pray about what is properly, not ours, but God's. And he clarifies it further, further with the second word, kingdom. The prayer is not a general reflection on everything that is God's, just your stuff, God, but a turn toward that which is his, as he is King. And I think that communicates a certain sense of order and purpose in it all. There is majesty and strength in such a word. Our Father is a king. He has a kingdom. It, it brings to mind armor and crowns and, and authority and thrones and dominion. When you pray, look away at that when you pray. Look away from yourself to the one who is a king. Put him before your mind's eye and then the verb in this three-word sentence, and it is a summons, come, come. The kingdom that is our Father's, by that word, is taught to us that it's not here. We may be praying for it and thinking it's right in front of our sight, but as soon as that verb comes in, it's cast away from us, and it's not yet. It is not now. It needs to come, and we have to pray for it to come, to pray that the majesty and strength and order of our Father's kingdom that we know to be true must come. And notice how that orients our gaze. Not only does the your move us away from ourselves, but the come moves us away from the present to that which is not yet, to that which is future, to that which needs to come. And we are made for this, aren't we? You ever notice that we all live with our eyes looking ahead of ourselves? We always are. We all have our eyes on the next holiday, the next deadline, the next vacation. We live today in light of that which is coming, making plans and and saving money. And Jesus calls us into a place where that future hope or that expectation, that ability for us to look future and plan in the present and live in the present for the future, actually finds its proper orientation. Not our our vacation not our boss's deadline, or even our own, not even our calendars, but ultimately, finally, consummately, His kingdom come. What is the capacity in us that looks to the future and lives in the present meant to align itself to? That. That. And so we pray it. Your kingdom come. And then moving to verse 3, the Lord teaches us next to ask the Father to give. Give. And it is a communal request. He says, pray this way. Give us. It's not a solo mission, is it? We're not all by ourselves in this life of prayer and life as a Christian. Not at all. We are members of a larger group. We're gathered here in a group tonight. It's not just me and Jesus. And even when it is just me and Jesus, if I'm praying Jesus' prayer, I'm not praying alone, am I? Give us, our Father, as we typically pray the prayer. G.K. Chesterton, some of you know that name, once wrote about his own, his own conversion to the faith. And he describes it as coming into a recognition or experience of a reality that seemed like it had never been discovered before. And he he describes it in terms of an explorer who's come to find a a deserted island that is new and unmapped and uncharted. And so he comes up on the shore having been beaten by waves and salt water and he he notices he's found this glorious new land and he's just about to take his flag and to claim it for himself. And as he does so, he looks up and he sees that it's England. And that people have been here for thousands of years. And they have been living on this land and mapping it and naming it and claiming it for long before he arrived. And I think that's a perfect picture of us in the Christian life. It is a land inhabited, long inhabited by many for thousands of years, and we just enter into that group as members of the church Catholic then and the church local. We pray, give us, us, God's people each day, our daily bread. Together we recognize that our daily sustenance come from the Father to whom we pray, our Father. And not just immediate nourishment, not just bread on the table today, but preparation through that bread and in that bread for the future. Just consider Israel in the wilderness and the bread that they receive as their daily bread. Bread from heaven fallen on the ground, manna that they gathered up that nourished them. It sustained their daily needs, did it not? Yes, maybe not to their measure of what sustenance should be at times, but nevertheless it was what they needed. But as such it also taught them and prepared their hearts for the bread of heaven that was coming. Jesus himself, who said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And we ask for bread then. We are seeking not only bread, but bread that prepares us for the kingdom which we pray will come. We're making ready for the king. We prepare our appetites for his feast that he promises to set before him for us when he comes. All of our tables, are preparation for that table. And to further ready ourselves, we pray the next petition in verse 4 and forgive us our sins." Why? Because the One who comes, comes not only as a king, but as a judge, as all the ancient kings were, judges. He comes to take His seat, and we must be ready to stand on the hallowed ground in the presence of the Holy King, who has a holy name. And so we pray, rightly, forgive our sins. As often as we ask for bread, we ask for this, Give me bread and forgive me of my sins. It is as necessary, you see, as eating. Apart from such forgiveness, the rest, all of it, is worth nothing because in the end it will all be burnt up in the fire. Give us bread and get with it give us forgiveness. We must, it is necessary, have both. And then he adds to that this, this part that I think is the most unexpected part. He adds a condition does he not? To our prayer for forgiveness. Yes, seek forgiveness, but only inasmuch as you are one who is yourself forgiving. He actually calls us to pay that, as the second half of verse 4 has it. Look at it. It says, We ask for forgiveness, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And notice the scope of that. Everyone. But what about that what, no? everyone. It is is very matter-of-fact in this sense. We, communal, forgive everyone who is indebted to us. There's no language about what they do to receive it or how they are made worthy for it. And it is, like I said, communal. All of us are called to do it together. We've seen how in many ways this prayer brings us into the experience of blessings that are ours in Christ. We find God as Father, ourselves as members of a community, a family. We are led into the understanding of our God and Father as a King and the place that we live as something like a kingdom as well as a home. We see God's holiness. We are fed. We are forgiven. But all of these things are in some way outside of us. They make up the the objective reality in which we live. But this last condition conditional statement, changes that. It is a prayer that in its essence is a prayer for inter- internal change, a new heart, a new will-, will. I mean, literally, if you think about it, the motive is knit into the prayer. When you pray for forgiveness, you say, if. pray Forgive them, for we forgive. Forgive them as long as we are those who forgive, which makes us want to do What? If you want to be forgiven for your sins, then you want to be forgiving because such people are the ones that receive forgiveness. Praying this prayer and meaning what we say in it will, in that way, change us. The more we pray that, the more we'll want to have our desires shaped. It will make us want to be forgiving and merciful and kind and generous to everyone so that we can experience the kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and generosity of God. We will, in that sense, be like Jesus, or at least want to be, long for it, being brought along by the prayer to such a place, a place where we find we want Christ-likeness, where we both have it, we're speaking and praying with Him, and want it more. Well, in such a place, it is fitting, is it not, to ask the last thing, to pray the last petition, and mean it, and lead us not. Into temptation, keep us right here in this place where we want to be like Jesus. Where we where we say the things that Jesus says and see the world as Jesus sees it and long for the kingdom to come. Let us not be drawn away into some other frame of mind, into some other disposition of heart. It's not a, it's not a prayer. This ask for deliver, asking for not being led into temptation. It's not a prayer for deliverance from difficulty or hard times. No, far from it. Our Christ-likeness is cross-shaped. It's not deliverance from that, but faithfulness in it. Fellowship in it. Grace and mercy in it. No matter what comes, it is a position to be kept back from slipping into that place we all so often go naturally, to selfishness for making God like ourselves, not your kingdom, mine. Let us not be tempted to eat bread just to be filled in our bellies and be comfortable here and forgetful of that coming day. Let us not be tempted to grow cold and hard-hearted against those who are indebted to us. Let us not be tempted to live a life outside of and away from You it's fitting that that comes at the end having prayed all the other things that lead us into fellowship and union with Christ we cry out oh keep us in this grace lead us not into such temptation and fittingly he has given us a means to that very end prayer for us who know not what to pray he's given us a prayer his prayer by which our prayer is made like His. And then, fittingly as well, what do you say, having having gone through this Lord's Prayer and thought about all the things that it means and all the things that will lead us to pray for, but to end it with that very simple and familiar word, Amen. Amen. Let it be so, Lord. Let me pray. Father in Heaven, we pray that we would not let this word from Jesus fall flat and be set aside and not be made use of, but Lord, that we would take up this instrument that you have given us so freely and that we, each of us individually, make use of it so that we, O Lord, might be made more and more like you, that we might grow in grace and that we, Father, might in the end be kept from temptation to fall away from it and persevere to the end to to lift up our heads and rejoice at your coming. And hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, from your lips. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.